Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show. I'm your host, Alex Thuma. And on this week's episode, we are taken back to Slush, which happened in November in Helsinki, uh, where I was at the Google Cloud for Startups podcast booth and had the great opportunity to speak to a number of uh, amazing entrepreneurs. And on this week's episode, I'm joined by Tina Sharkey, who's the co-founder of Brandless. Uh, interestingly, Tina will be the first non-SaaS founder or exec on the SaaS Revolution Show podcast. But Tina is a founder of a, a, an amazing e-commerce uh, business, which is Brandless, uh, one that has raised almost $300 million um, from you know, a who's who list of uh, VCs. Uh, and for me, it was really great to kind of speak with Tina to see how she's scaled her business, to see you know, what she thinks about culture and community. Uh, and I, I, I really just sat like, opposite uh, an amazing uh, founder that was, in, in my view, uh, you know, a few levels uh, uh, above me for sure. And it was just impressive to kind of sit there and listen to her and see, you know, how, how polished she was. And I think it's going to be a great listen for you now on with the show. Tina Sharkey, co-founder of Brandless. Welcome, Tina. Hi, I'm so psyched to be here. Yeah, so we are uh, in Helsinki. We're at Slush. We're in the, the podcast booth uh, for, uh, by Google Cloud uh, for startups. And uh, so is this your first time in Helsinki? Yes, um, I am so happy to be here. And, you know, the Slush people are awesome. And the last couple of years, they've asked me to come. Yeah. But November, uh, if you're in an e-commerce business, is not a great month. Yeah. But uh, this year, I said, no matter what, I will be there. And so now we're like in this little red cloud amongst yeah. 25,000 people, but yeah. somehow you've created um, a little respite. So this is awesome. Excellent. All right. And so so tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you, you know, who is Tina Sharkey? Like, let's know you as a, a human being and also as, a, as an entrepreneur, which yes. I, I guess both are the same. Yeah, they're the same. Um, so, uh, well, first and foremost, I'm a mom. Um, I have two amazing sons, uh, Jacob and Charlie. And um, so that's when I think about like, what are my values? Like family first. And so being a mom is the best job ever. Um, and so that's this first thing. Um, I'm a sister, I'm a friend, I'm a yes, serial entrepreneur, but also an intrapreneur. And I've also been, um, and I continue to be uh, an investor. I've both been on the investment committee of venture funds, but I also um, do my own angel investing. And um, I like to back uh, great founders and then also be investor advisor. And so that's been a lot of fun too. And so, but all of that is me. Um, I just, uh, you know, there are many facets and many chapters. I always say that, you know, the book isn't written until you're looking up at the grass. <laughs> so uh, I love cross training. I love doing the things that help people uh, scale and build brands and communities and giving founders sort of some of my wisdom of, and my experience to give them an unfair advantage of sharing the things that I, that I know and learn. And I like to teach and I've been doing a lot of teaching lately at business schools around the country. So the, the serial entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneur part, uh, Brandless is startup number? Ah, good question. Well, you know, like I said, I'm an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. So in 94, I co-founded iVillage, which was uh, at the time the largest community for women online. And so now we're in 2019. And so a lot of the things that I've done have been inside of companies. So QVC, which is a uh, e-commerce um, and commerce company, uh, mostly on TV. We started a company for QVC, another channel inside. And then Baby Center, that was at Johnson & Johnson, 
that uh, I didn't found that company, but it was a turnaround and we scaled it. Um, and then I've led a lot of businesses inside of bigger companies. So in terms of raising venture capital um, and starting a company from scratch, uh, Brandless is my second. Um, but I, uh, at iVillage, I did not do the fundraising. I was on the founding team and a co-founder, but the CEO uh, did that fundraising. So in a way, Brandless was my first startup uh, that I did from scratch and raised the money with my co-founder. Um, and that's been kind of remarkable. And what is Brandless for those that don't know? And why did you uh, found this uh, company? So uh, my co-founder and I found that um, Brandless really came to life because we felt like the system by which goods were bought and sold was broken. And we saw a loss of trust and a demise of institutional trust, a trust in governments. We didn't elect our parents president at the, in the US. We saw uh, people rejecting brands. 78% of millennials said they didn't want to buy the products they grew up with. And we saw this massive consumer shift into uh, wanting to have transparency into the ingredients, uh, the manufacturing, the sustainability, et cetera, of the goods that they were buying and sharing and part of their lives because people wanted to live better lives and that it was less about consumption and more about like life well lived and self-care. And so Brandless was born from the idea that we could create extraordinary high quality products uh, with better ingredient profiles and more sustainable manufacturing and building for ship, not necessarily shelf, by taking water out of things and thinking about plastics in a new way um, at more accessible prices um, to democratize access to goodness. And so it was about making incredibly high quality, uh, sustainable, uh, better products for all aspects of your life and finding ways to uh, partner with brands and partner with our community to co-create alongside us. Uh, and for, for the audience as well, can you share some data points just to get some uh, understanding of the, the, the size of, of the company, like you know, how many employees, uh, how many locations, uh, if there are multiple locations, any revenue if you can share, if not, uh, no worries, but just to get uh, an understanding of the, of the size of the business. Yeah, so some things I can share and some I can't, but I can say that we were, we launched to the public in July of 2017, but we had started a few years before that in mm -hmm. the developing and all of that, um, that we have, uh, our headquarters are in San Francisco and in Minneapolis. Uh, we have one distribution center in the U.S. Uh, we've partnered with Feeding America, which is the U.S. nation's largest hunger relief organization. And every time you check out at Brandless, we donate a meal in your honor. And we've donated just under 4 million meals to date. Uh, we have um, hundreds of products that we've developed um, and we're going into new categories where we're partnering with what we're calling our friends of Brandless. Um, and so we're going into CBD uh, for topical, um, you know, muscle relief, sleep relief, anxiety relief, etc. As well as drops, etc. Working with other brands that we love. And we are uh, steep in, into the clean beauty space and we're also working with other brands there. Uh, we have probably across both of our uh, sites probably just around 100 people. Um, but then we partner with a 3PL for our third-party logistics. So we have some of our team in the warehouse, but then we also work with a warehouse uh, you know, distribution company. And so there's lots more people that are part of our extended community, but they're not on our team. And um, uh, we brought in a new CEO um, who uh, has worked with, I'm still on the board and the chair and all of that, but is working with us to um, open up new distribution channels 
And so we are direct consumer, but we are also going into physical retail so that we can scale the business and be accessible to people um, for the kinds of products they're looking for in that grab and go versus the things that they're looking just for their home, et cetera. Um, and um, yeah, we've raised uh, just under north of $200 million. Um, and um, yeah, and we're just getting started. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the background there. So it really kind of helps you to get the picture of, uh, uh, of the great company that, that, that you've built. So you're happy to share with us, um, you know, in terms of like, let's say the early days and, you know, getting started in brandless, like, um, you know, how you, you went about uh, your go to market plan uh, to, to really kind of create, I, I guess, kind of awareness and first to get those kind of initial uh, sales through. Yeah. So it's interesting, I remember in the first few weeks, maybe even the first few months um, when we launched because you know the team had been working so hard before that. And I remember like on day one, day two, day 10, um, day 30, day 50, people were like so focused on the sales numbers. And they said to me, you know, what is the number that you care about the most? Because I think it's critically important to have the whole company owning the KPIs and owning the metrics by which we're all gonna deem successful and you can't have a thousand of them has to be very focused and then people need to know what role they're going to play. And I said, look, right now, the goal is to capture intent. And everyone like looked at me and sort of scratched their head, like, how do we measure that? And I said, well, we measure that in a few ways, but because we are such an exciting story and we're disrupting the marketplace and people are writing about us from all different aspects, the time that they hear about us, be it on television or in the newspaper or in social media, et cetera, is not necessarily the time that they're going to buy from us because they might be on the subway, they might be on their way to work, they might hear some radio announcer like that read about us, etc. So what we need to do is we need to capture intention. And that metric in the early days means we have to get their email addresses because then we are permissioning, they are permissioning us to talk to them again. And so from the very, very first day of Brandless, even before the first day, we started to develop all of our own, what I call O&Os, owned and operated content and communication channels. Because you shouldn't have to pay for the people who have already heard about you and they want you to email them. So the inbox, in my opinion, is the new portal. And so you're aggregating into someone's inbox, but don't just email them when they're checking out. Don't just email them when you're having a new product email them to share news, email them to spotlight people in the community, email them when you have things to talk about that are not just about yourself and just promotional. And so developing that content strategy from the very, very first days before we even launched the, to the public, so that anytime somebody came into Brandless and they gave us their email address, it gave us permission to talk to them again. And so we were capturing that intention so that we could actually re engage and not have to go and reacquire those people and then any person that visited us on our community platforms be it instagram be it facebook be it twitter etc we made sure that every single visitor um, was greeted everybody was seen and that when people were reposting or hashtagging brandless and showing us how they were using their products or what they were doing in their life or their unboxing videos etc that we were engaged with those people, we were reposting many of them, people had recipes, people had life hacks, how they were using our products, and we put those stories back into our stories. And so it's that co-creation with the community, capturing the intent, making sure everyone in the community feels seen, 
having purpose and meaning everything that you do and authentically walking that walk every day and sharing that with your community on how to do it and making sure that you're also physically showing up from time to time in places and having conversations. And so from the very early days, we were doing pop-ups in LA and pop-ups in New York, learning how people wanted to interact with us in real physical spaces, which I believe was a huge impetus to going and distributing in physical retail with third-party partners because people were so wanting to have the brands in their communities. So all of those things, whether they're experiments, whether they're episodic, whether they are long-term strategies or whether it's just test and learn, um, if you're focused on what the KPIs are, how you're going to deem whether you're successful or not successful, and you take that learning and put it into the institutional knowledge of the company, um, then you're going to uh, learn, even if it's a, you didn't hit the metric that you want, what did you learn? Because that's learning unto itself. Are, you, are your KPIs today much different to what they were in the, in the first year? I mean, is, is intent still one of the, the, the key things that you're, you're measuring? Well, I think that, um, you know, that became how many newsletter um, subscribers. So that became the subscriber count. So that is something there. But then as you become more mature, um, then you're saying, well, what's the repeat purchase rate? Um, is that community coming back in? Um, what's the lifetime value? Are they buying across department and things like that? And so you begin to look at things as you mature and as you're audience and your community matures with you, then you're changing things against, you know, quarterly goals, planning goals, etc. But capturing the email subscribers is still a metric that we care about. What about your role as the, uh, as the co-founder and CEO in the, in the first year of the business? What were the, the, the kind of the primary things that you were doing to kind of drive the business to ensure that it, it survives and then and it grows? So it's a great question because the founding team really uh, everybody played their part and you know your job as the founder or the CEO is you're like the orchestra leader and hopefully you can play a few of the instruments but you don't have to play all of them what you really need to know is who are the best at playing those things and so uh, my role in the earliest days I mean so much of the product uh, when you hear our voice and the way in which we express that the brand the identity the community etc uh, was a huge passion uh, part of mine, but there's nothing at Brandless that I would take individual credit for because it really is a team and it is the effort of a team that comes to uh, work together to be able to do that execution. Um, but my co-founder had a lot of experience in product development and our first head of product and merchandise had just come out of you know a tour of duty of 10 plus years at Target developing all their non-perishable grocery and she built an extraordinary team and our head of product safety quality and integrity had probably 25 years of experience sitting on all kinds of boards of you know organics and other industry thought leading boards so she had you know incredible experience and our first um, eng leader had built out multiple commerce experiences and our first uh, marketers and CMOs, um, they had brought direct-to-consumer brands to the business, I mean to life, and then our first head of community, um, she literally was in dialogue with our earliest tribal members, you know, I call it the tribe that comes early, and then she scaled that community alongside the people that came to serve us. So, you know, my, I think your job as the, as the CEO is to, um, you gotta get ahead of it, 
Um, the more mature your company is, the farther ahead you have to get. When you're in the earliest stage, you're also like, you're playing a lot of the roles as well as getting ahead of it at the same time. But I think of the CEO as like the chief storyteller. So who are you telling a story to? In the early days, you're talking to investors. Um, you're telling uh, potential team members because you're recruiting and that's the most important thing. You're telling it to the team that's there and you're helping them understand where you are and where you're going. And then you're telling it to the community that uh, that's come to engage with you. And then finally, you're telling it to the media so that they can help you amplify your story, whether it's the trade for the industries that you're serving, whether it's consumer for the editors that are tracking beauty and other things, or whether it's the business uh, trade that is looking at disruptors, et cetera. And so those are a lot of different constituents that all you're telling the same story to, but from a different vantage point because they need to hear different things in order to kind of make it relevant to their experience. So part of your job as the CEO is to be the chief storyteller um, and to make sure that that's part of the recruiting, that's part of employee engagement, that's part of the community building, and then that's part of you know the trade. So being, being the chief storyteller, and I, I agree with you uh, uh, as well on that part in terms of this is the uh, uh, one of the key functions of a, of a CEO, but when you're, let's say, a first year CEO versus second year versus third year, and imagine you're doing this for the first time, um, do you think it's like uh, because you're the CEO or, or you know the founder that and you have the passion, you're the one maybe, you know, arguably with the most kind of drive and that ability to paint the vision. Um, is, is that something that comes innate within you just because of that's the role, because you created the company? Or could, you know, do you think that there are cases where there, there are CEOs and founders who maybe generally are not great storytellers? Uh, and if that's the case, like, how do you become a better storyteller? So um, I'm blessed in that that's something that you know, is definitely something that's a superpower of mine. But um, I think that the most important thing is that regardless of whether it is your superpower or it's not your superpower, it's not all about you. It's about the people you're there to serve. And so the first people you're there to serve is your team. And so giving them the opportunity to tell stories, um, having them, uh, whether it's internal or external, you want to like arm your team to be as passionate as you are um, in the areas where they are best in class because as you start to scale, you can't recruit every new employee. And so you need to make sure that the story of your company, the ethos of your company, and the institutional knowledge that you're creating is codified um, within the organization so that the recruiting that you've done in the early days and the recruiting that your team members are doing that you might not even have the privilege to meet those employees. People literally had to say, Tina, you can't interview every single person. Um, we know you want to, but it's not possible. There aren't enough hours in the day. And that was like so sad for me because our first customer service reps, our first engineers, our first everybody and second and third I met them all, some of whom I recruited personally and many of whom I, uh, you know, I was part of the process. And so when I realized that that didn't scale, um, that's when it became clear to me that the storytelling aspect of it, everyone had to be armed with that story because everyone who's recruiting has to be able to share that narrative. And so um, that means you have to work hard at the center of your organization to codify that. And so a lot of the decks and the storytelling um, and the employee onboarding and the employee training, like you've got to put time and energy against that. The 
other thing I would say, and I think a lot of founders make this mistake, a lot of companies make this mistake, big companies too, which is that they spend a lot of time recruiting. They finally get that candidate. Um, that candidate joins the company. And because they're so focused on high growth, they're spending their time recruiting the next people and they forgot that that person hasn't been onboarded. So that rock star that you spent all this time and energy getting in the door has been left to figure it out for themselves. And so I think it's critically important to have like a buddy system, not just for the hiring manager and the department leader, but for somebody who's like what I would call a culture holder in the company, even if they're working on a totally different aspect or they have a different skill set, creating both um, organic ways, like through lunch tables and common spaces and uh, uh, department adjacencies, as well as structural buddies, where you know somebody gets assigned to have a coffee or a tea once a week with that person and to be that safe place where like the AMAs, ask me anything. Oh, you can't figure out how to sign up for your health insurance. Well, I'm sure the HR team was gonna try and help you, but in an early stage startup, there may not be an HR team or in a bigger company, the HR team, that might not be their thing they can get to right away. You shouldn't have to wait for those things. And so there's so much learning that can go on inside of a company between the people who are already there. And then they should be able to do the AMAs, the ask me anything. And so investing in the tools where there's org charts that people can see who's who in the zoo and investing in the physical spaces, we always had a common table uh, where we would serve uh, buffet lunches. And it wasn't about the free food. It was really about the uh, priceless uh, serendipity and conversations that would happen at the lunch table where people would sit and gather together and relationships get built. So there's lots of ways to uh, kind of empower other people within the organization to be those storytellers, even if it's in one-on-ones. And then you find that people are like, oh my gosh, Lindsay is the go-to for that. So all of a sudden, Lindsay's now going to a trade show or Lindsay's now doing a community meetup. And that might not have even been her job, but because she, you discovered that she's so good at it, um, that it becomes a way where you create the ambassadors inside the company. But first and foremost, you have to fortify every person that's there to really feel comfortable, to feel empowered, um, and to feel engaged. And that starts with the narrative that everyone needs to share. What for you have been the sort of biggest challenges in, in growing and scaling the business so, uh, over the last sort of few years? And, and how would you, uh, or how did you overcome those challenges? So I'd say like, you know, one of the biggest challenges, you know, Brandless has a lot of complexity because we are uh, manufacturing, um, scaling and all the rest. And so for me, um, realizing that I can't have my hands in everything um, but it's more my nature of not so much wanting to meddle, but wanting to be of service and wanting to help. Um, and so learning to empower people um, and give them their goals and to step back um, and knowing when to do that, when to lean in, when to lean out, when to give people their space, when to uh, kind of uh, help them with the resources or the shortcuts or to let them figure it out, to know that I can't make every decision. Like I said, uh, I can't interview everybody and all the rest. And then, you know, in the transition of going from the operator day to day to the board, knowing that, you know, that goes from, that's a whole nother step back. And so I want to set up the team to be successful and they have to own it themselves. And so it's when you're making that transition, you have to reroute all the people that would normally come to you for answers 
to go to the new person for answers. And sometimes they may not make the decisions that you would make, or they may not make it in the way that you would make them, but you have to like give them space and opportunity to establish their own narrative and their own voice. When, when you're growing a, uh, a, a fast growth company or even, even just, I guess, running any, any business, right? The, the, the CEO, uh, the pace of learning, you, you know, needs to be kind of pretty, pretty fast, right? Uh, as fast, if not faster than the, uh, the business that you're growing. What do you do, um, you know, to kind of learn uh, and to, so that, you know, you can be the best, you know, you can be, you know, for your company, for your team? So one of the benefits of being, uh, you know, in the startup community especially in the early stages, is we have extraordinary investors. And so one of our early stage investors happens to be one of my closest friends, Aileen Lee at Cowboy Ventures. Mm -hmm. And um, so Aileen and I have known each other for, I don't know, 15 plus years, but she uh, invests in our seed round and in our A. And she um, and never afraid to reach out to any of our investors and to ask for the connectivity, to ask to meet other founders that are facing similar challenges asked to uh, help with recruiting. So asking questions, using, thinking about, especially in the early stages, thinking about your venture community, the community that has scaled exposure to other founders, um, HR leaders who may have candidate um, uh, that they're, they have internal recruiting. And so they may be, many startups are looking for the similar thing. So a candidate that might not have been right for one role in one of their companies might be right for yours and vice versa and also to ask for um, their resources. So Google, actually, Google Ventures uh, is in our company, but they have extraordinary teams that have done design sprints with us, that have done UI and UX sprints with us, that have been unbelievably helpful in the things that is their superpower. So every investor has different superpowers. It's not just money. It's also um, passion, expertise, resources in different ways. And learning how to unlock those and take advantage of people that you couldn't afford to hire necessarily, but are there to be of service and helpful is a great uh, way for a founder to uh, take shortcuts and get that unfair advantage. And how do you stay healthy and sane uh, in, in your uh, journey? <laughs> well, who says I'm sane? Uh, that's nothing I've ever been It's an said. assumption. <laughs> yes, it's an assumption. Um, I'd say that uh, sleep is really important. Um, exercise is very important. Cardio, like four times a week at least. Mm -hmm. um, and um, a lot of water and a lot of rest. Um, and, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, what are my favorite business books? What are my favorite business podcasts? And the truth is that I try and develop other aspects of myself so that you cross train. And so staying sane is, you know, I love art um, and I love design. And so I'm here in Helsinki. I want to make sure I go to the art museum. Um, you know, going and meeting yet another founder, yet another startup. It's, I want to meet them too. And I'm doing mentoring sessions and all kinds of things. But if I don't fortify myself so that my creativity is whole, then I can't give out to others. Awesome. Well, uh, Tina Sharkey, we, we, we've come to the end of the show. Thanks so much for being an amazing guest on the SAS Revolution show today. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the SAS Revolution show with Tina Sharkey, co-founder of Brandless. If you like this episode, please don't forget to rate us and review us in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And we'll see you on the next show.